Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3. If you've listened to me for any length of time, you know this to be true. I do not usually begin my sermon with a story, uh, let alone a humorous one, Um, but I will today. Um, This is courtesy of John Schreiner. I remember him telling me that uh, I think when he was having a studio built, he had a particular craftsman who did really good work for him. And John was just exceptionally pleased with what he had done. And and John told him, you know, this is really great work. And the man said something to the effect, uh, it's not me. The Lord did it. God did it. Well, if you know John at all, being as sharp and as quick as he is, he said, that, then who do I make the check out to? Uh, if, if you didn't do it, then should I be paying you? Um, in Galatians 2.20, we are, in a sense, it seems that we are confronted with this, this question of... Um, if Christ is living in me, am I doing anything? Uh, who is doing what? And, and who, what exactly is the arrangement? Is it me? Is it God? I mean, you know, what is going on? If you look at verse number 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to touch on this by way of review, even though... Uh, some of this hasn't been discussed previously, and then move on to chapter 3. We saw last Sunday that Paul viewed conversion as involving three things, death, union, and love. That is, death to an identity apart from God, not death to one's identity, and then union with Christ, not the elimination of oneself. And I'll talk about this more in a few minutes. All of this made possible because, as he says, Jesus loved me, and gave himself for me. So, is it me doing it, or is it God? I mean, what is the arrangement? Is there a line where, like, okay, this is Damon's doing stuff, or this is God doing stuff? I think there are three things that are helpful and should be kept in mind when we consider this. And we do it within the framework of creation, fall, and redemption. That is, this is the way God originally intended it to be, and then the fall is sin messed it up, And then when Jesus comes into the world, he seeks to redeem, to bring it back to what it was, but not, in a sense, the original, but a higher state, a higher place. The first thing that we should always keep in mind is that we are creatures. We are created beings. We will always be creatures. In creation, in fall and redemption, in eternity, we will still be creatures. Nothing can change this. Even when the life of God is given to us, when we are given the Holy Spirit, when Christ lives in us, we're still creatures. If you could put into us all that you could of God into me, I am still going to be a created being. I cannot be otherwise. We cannot be otherwise. Now, some might argue, and I think wrongly, that we might cease to exist. You know, annihilation. I don't think that's true. 
as long as we have existence, we will be creatures. The second thing we should keep in mind is because we are creatures, what we have, what we have been given, are gifts that come from the Creator. As creatures, we are dependent. We cannot be independent. That is, by definition, what it means to be a creature. A creature was created, has being given to it. It cannot simply exist on its own. All that we have, all that we have been given, including life itself, has come from the Creator. We read in in Genesis chapter 1, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So that life and existence come from God. Every breath that we take comes from the Creator. Even the breath we might use to curse God and blaspheme God comes from God. By the way, this sort of helps answer the question, you know, if the good I do comes from God, the God-given abilities, what about the evil that I do? Well, I would say that's on you. Because God gave you the ability, and you have now taken that ability and twisted it and perverted it to use it for something other than what he intended. All that is necessary for the maintenance of life comes from God. Keep in mind, these gifts are not for ourselves. They are given to us for the common good, for society, for the maintenance of human society. We're so individualistic, we think if God gives us a gift, it's for us. It is not simply for us. It is for the common good. Secondly, these gifts that God has given us require that we use them and that we continue to develop them. The fact that God gives you a gift doesn't mean that you don't have to practice, you don't have to work on it, you don't have to hone it and improve it. Uh, No, in fact, you do. Thirdly, I would argue that in the exercising and the using of the gifts that God has given us, we may or may not have a sense of a source outside of ourselves. Some particularly artists speak of their muse. Um, that sort of guides them and gives them inspiration. Uh, muses were in Greek mythology the goddesses who inspired the creation of literature and the arts. They were also considered the source of knowledge. I'm sure this has happened to you. <coughs> Excuse me. You do something, and you're, you know, without being proud or boastful, you're just sort of amazed that you did that. You're like, where did that come from? Excuse me. I would argue it comes from the same place where everything else comes from. The ability to breathe. (coughs) The ability to see. The ability to cough. Uh, Excuse me a minute. It comes from the Creator. He is the one who has enabled us to do all these things. But remember, we're still the creatures, and He's still the Creator. The third thing to keep in mind is that we should be marked by gratitude. Paul asked the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who makes you different from any, anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? I understand that Paul is speaking of something different there, that the Corinthians had become very full of themselves, that they thought they had a higher spiritual status than even Paul. But the principle is there. 
all that we have comes from the Creator. And therefore, the proper response is gratitude. And as Paul points out, and I've mentioned many times in Romans 1, the first step away from God is when we don't say thank you. The first step away from God is when we refuse to be grateful. Or we may just forget to be grateful. We might get bored with it. Get tired of saying thank you, thank you, thank you. But in fact, all that we have comes from the Creator. And in this vein, humility is in fact a recognition that we are creatures, that what we have, we have been given, and that what we do is a result of what we have been given. So that if you do good work, and somebody says, "That's a, you've done really good work, um, we should say thank you. And then we should say thank you to God because he, in fact, is the one who has enabled us to do that. We shouldn't say, oh, no, 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 that was the Lord. Um, I think God gets blamed for a lot of our uh, miscreations, if you wish. Um, but we are creatures. Everything we have, we have been given and we are to be grateful. Now, for all that I've just said, this, in fact, is not what Paul is getting at in chapter 2, verse number 20. Rather, he is focusing on the matter of identity. If you remember, we've gone through this, that uh, he rebukes Peter, the apostle Peter, Barnabas, and the men from Jerusalem, those brothers who came up from Jerusalem. In verses 19 and 20, Paul makes three similar assertions. I mentioned this last week. I died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. These statements sound similar, but they are not identical. But they all point to the same reality that who I was, Paul said, my previous identity is irrelevant. And Paul says this to Peter and the Jews, that who they are as Jews is irrelevant. They shouldn't think that they are better than the Gentiles, the lesser breeds, as Paul puts it. If they are going to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, then the old identity is irrelevant. And that should die. They should die to that. The end of that identity should be final. I died, I've been crucified, I no longer live. That old identity, by the way, I think is not a matter of personality or who I am, but it is who I am apart from God. And seeking, I think, to have existence apart from God. And the new identity I have is not simply me, it is identification with Christ. And so it is death and union. We are united with Christ, but we have to die to this old identity. Both made possible by love. If we don't do this, then Paul says in verse number 21, Christ died for nothing. So the issue is not the loss of personal identity. I want to make that clear. Rather, it is the setting aside of an identity that marks us as being separated from the one who made us. And then we put our faith in Jesus the Messiah. We take on the identity of being reconciled to God. Now, if you are content, if one is content with one's identity as alienated from God, as not needing the Creator, as being self-sufficient, then you should not put your faith in Jesus. Just stay where you are, because that's what you want. As Jesus put it, um, he did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And sinners know something's wrong. Something needs to change. 
But those who are self-righteous are like, well, I'm fine. I, I don't need this Messiah to come. I think Paul is very clear about this. That if, in fact, you are content with your old identity, stay there. But if you're going to put your faith in Christ, then this old identity, as being separated from God, must be put to death. Unfortunately, I think in our culture, in which one's faith or one's belief is seen as privately engaging but publicly irrelevant, um, putting one's faith in Jesus may be seen as in the same light as adding a new program to your computer or a new app to your cell phone. And Paul would say, no, no, no. It's not Jesus plus something. That's the whole issue here in Galatians. Jesus is not an accessory to one's ensemble. Okay? One must put to death this old identity of being self-sufficient and one must be united to Jesus. And we must be grateful, not only for what Jesus has done for us, but for that which makes it possible, that is, his love for us. Well, in the first two chapters, which we finished last week, we see that Paul tells his story to reinforce the twin truths that his apostleship did not come from man, and that his gospel was not made up or received from man, but received from revelation from Jesus Christ. Well, now he's told his story. In chapter 3, verse 1, he now turns to the Galatians. And the opening language is rather harsh. You foolish Galatians. Uh, The New English Bible has, you stupid Galatians. Uh, Peterson's, Eugene Peterson's, the message says, you crazy Galatians. Why is Paul so worked up? What's going on here? Well, listen as he writes, and We'll go through the first nine verses here. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. The word translated as foolish or stupid deals with mental or intellectual ability, uh, either the insufficiency or the mistaken use of one's mental powers, or that one has simply not understood what has been said. And so Paul asks him, what's, you know, what is, as one, I think, Drill instructor put it, what is your major mental malfunction? I mean, what's going on? Are your brains not working? But then he says, who bewitched you? And it, it points to having a spell cast on you, like a hypnotic effect. 
The root word is the same from which we get the English word fascinated. And it points to the Galatians being sort of taken in, sort of fascinated with this new teaching that these men from Jerusalem had brought. I find it uh, noteworthy that Paul begins with foolish or stupid. Um, In fact, I find it fascinating that he includes it at all. Rather than starting with bewitched, um, I think we would have preferred that somebody tricked me. That's, yeah, that's it. That's what happened. I was bewitched. But Paul doesn't do that. The Galatians need to know they bear responsibility. The story is told that after World War II, the pastors uh, in Europe, but primarily in, in Germany, a group of them met together, and they were lamenting the fact, and they were saying, we were misled by demonic forces. You know, the Nazis, the demonic forces, that's what led us astray. And as the writer puts it, a senior pastor brought them back from their near hysteria to sober reality. Gentlemen, we have all been very foolish. Don't put it on the Nazis and say they bewitched us. I think that that certainly was there. But there is the matter of personal responsibility. And as Paul begins to lay out his argument, which he does here in the first nine verses, and he'll carry through the rest of the book, he wants the Galatians to know that they bear some of the responsibility. By the way, we saw this earlier on in chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. How did this happen? How did it happen that these Galatians, who had been converted from paganism to the Christian faith, suddenly find themselves going off track? It was, in part, just a sheer lack of logical reasoning. If they would sit down and think this through, they would have seen that, oh no, these guys from Jerusalem, what they're saying is wrong. Uh, We should not listen to them. (coughs) Excuse me. First, the message of the gospel that Paul had preached to them centered around the reality that Jesus the Messiah had been crucified. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And here Paul doesn't mean that he wrote them a letter and described it, or that someone had drawn a a painting or did a drawing of the death of Jesus. Rather, it points to the public and the official character of the gospel. When one speaks the gospel, one must speak of Jesus the Messiah and Jesus the Messiah being crucified. This is what the gospel is all about. And by the way, the way that Paul writes this in Greek, and for us, we don't do Greek, and so we're stuck with the English and it doesn't come through as well, it does not characterize Jesus as still hanging on the cross uh, to be considered as one now, but rather this is him in his character. He was, in fact, put to death and then raised from the grave. I must confess that I think the impact of this is weaker with us than it was with the Galatians. First of all, we are so familiar with it. Uh, We are just so familiar with the notion of the crucified Christ. Um, People wear crosses or crucifixes. It, It is something that we are comfortable with. I think we would be less so if we saw someone actually being crucified today. If we actually saw a public crucifixion, I don't think we would look at it in the same way. I think also in our culture, we do not associate crime with punishment. 
at least not quickly and not directly. We have over 700 men on death row here in the state of California, and some of them have been there over 20 years. And when they are executed, it will not be a public event. And so the notion of someone dying as a common criminal quickly and publicly and shamefully, I think for us, we don't get that as well as the Galatians would have. The people of that time knew about crucifixion. Uh, They knew about the Romans. Uh, N.T. Wright puts it, the Romans were pretty good at killing people. They were used to it. They knew how to do it. They were extremely effective. Their empire was built on it. And when Paul speaks of Jesus Christ crucified, this is scandalous. This is shocking. Let me get this straight. The guy that you, that you worship, your God, was put to death as a common criminal by crucifixion? I mean, if he was a Roman citizen, he would, he would have uh, the grace or he would have the blessing of having his head cut off. Instantaneous death. But the person you worship... This is how he died. The message of the gospel is Jesus Christ crucified. As Paul has pointed out earlier, if being a part of the family of God is based on ethnicity, that is being Jewish, then Christ died for nothing. And so the Galatians are deserting the gospel for a sham, for a foolish or stupid position that makes no sense at all. The second thing that Paul tells them that, again, logically they should have seen this, is that in receiving the gospel, the Galatians had also received the Holy Spirit. That is to say, God had given them his spirit. They had become a part of the family of God. They had received a new identity. And and how did this happen? Well, listen again to Paul in verses 2 through 5. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? One of the things that Paul tries to stress, and I think we have lost a sense of this, it was recovered in the Reformation, but over time I think has sort of been depreciated. And that is that when the gospel is preached, the spirit is to be present. The gospel is not simply a collection of facts that you're a sinner and Christ came, he's the son of God, he died for you, and if you put your faith in him, Paul says the spirit must be there. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And then that classic passage in 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There it is again. That's the gospel. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. As I said, we must take care that we don't think of the gospel as merely theology, as as merely a collection of facts. It is the good news, and the good news about Jesus comes must come with the presence and the power of the Spirit of God. 
So if you can imagine, Paul comes into town, into Galatia, one of the towns there, and he preaches the gospel with the presence and power of the Spirit. And those who believe his message put their faith in Jesus, the crucified Messiah. They become a part of the family of God. They receive the Spirit of God. And so the one question that Paul puts to them is, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And this is a no-brainer. This should be clear because Paul preached to them the gospel. Paul did not preach to them the law. So if they believed and if they received the Spirit, observing the law could have had nothing to do with it because that is not what Paul preached. Paul preached the gospel, they believed, and they received the Spirit of God. It is only later when the troublemakers come from Jerusalem that they disturb and trouble the minds of the Galatians that the law even becomes an issue. If the Galatians would just stop and think a minute, they would remember and realize that they came into the family of God, that they received the Spirit of God by believing and trusting in Jesus. And if they would think just a little bit more, they would realize that they have really taken a very foolish path by following these false teachers. Are you so foolish, Paul asked, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Paul is saying, let me get this straight now. You came into the family of God by the Spirit, and now you want to come into the family of God by observing the law, by human effort? It, it doesn't make sense. You're in the family of God, and you want to come into the family, the family of God? That, that doesn't make sense. Are you so foolish to think this? Again, the New English Bible is rather direct. Can it be that you are so stupid? Before moving on to the third issue, Paul has a couple of questions here, which are a subset of this one question. Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? It may well be that the Galatians had been persecuted, they had experienced persecution for being Christians. Paul certainly did when he was in Lystra. We read, they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Then they all went back in the city and Paul got up and went to the next town. Well, I, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that the believers in Galatia also experienced persecution. Paul does say that they suffered much. They did not suffer for observing the law. They suffered for believing in Jesus as Lord. And the question is, was it for nothing? Is it in vain? The second question is, that, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? This is very much tied to what we find in verse number two. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing in what you heard? He goes further. The miraculous things that happened among the people of God in Galatia. How did these things happen? Do you observe the law? You keep the law? You're a really, really good person and then suddenly something miraculous happens? The answer is no. I would make the argument that the brothers, in quotation marks, the brothers who come from Jerusalem, these false teachers, um, they're not even thinking about the Spirit. They don't think in terms of the Holy Spirit. And they don't think in terms of the miraculous. In a, in a, in a real sense, they're speaking a different language. They're simply talking about observing the law. They were thinking in terms of belonging to Israel. And this leads to Paul's third point here, that the Galatians should have realized. 
By becoming a part of the family of God, they are already the children of Abraham. Verses 6 through 9, if you look at it. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What's the issue here? Remember that this letter is written to counter a situation in Galatia. And so we have to consider and try to reconstruct. Paul writes this. We don't know the situation, but we can sort of get an idea based on what he wrote. And he brings up the issue of Abraham and the issue of bringing or being the children of Abraham. And I I can't help but think that the men from Jerusalem are the ones who brought this up. Um, So their message probably went something like this. In order to be the true children of Abraham, that is, true Israelites and true monotheists on the road to salvation, you Galatian Gentiles need to keep the Jewish law and be circumcised. I would argue that these men had little or nothing to say about being a part of the family of God. To them, it was all about being a part of Israel, about being a part of the people of God rather than the family of God. And to Paul, this misses the point. He quotes from two different incidents in the life of Abraham to support his contention. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is taken from Genesis chapter 15, when God entered into a covenant with Abraham. Before the actual formality of establishing the covenant, God made a promise to Abraham. A son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This is a promise God made to Abraham. And the next verse says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. When God made a promise to Abraham, this promise to Abraham, Abraham believed it. It doesn't mean that now he gets to enter into covenant with God. That is established by God. The promise was already made. Rather, Abraham's belief showed that he was in covenant with God. And Abraham's faith was not simply about the promises. It was, in fact, that a relationship had been established between God and Abraham. What is Paul's point? Look at verse number 7. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. So it is by believing in what God says and believing in God that we are the children of Abraham, not by anything that we do, not by observing the law. The men from Jerusalem are saying, you need to be a part of the children of Abraham in terms of the flesh. You need to become a Jew. You need to convert over to Judaism. And Paul says, if you believe God and his promises, you already are a part of of the family of God and the children of Abraham. The second incident is actually from chapter 12. It's earlier in Genesis. It's the first time that we encounter Abraham at all in the Bible. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse 
and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It is this last statement that Paul refers to, all nations will be blessed through you. I think the men from Jerusalem preferred the first statement, I will make you into a great nation. And they are saying to the Gentile Christians, hey, if you want to be part of the great nation of Israel, you need to be circumcised, you need to observe the law. Paul sees it very, very differently. He sees this initial encounter between God and Abraham as an indication that God would save the Gentiles. Not just the Jews, but God would, through Abraham and his descendants, the Jews, would bring salvation to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles would come to be a part of the family of God by faith, by trusting and believing what God had said and promised. Paul makes, I think, a rather startling statement here that the gospel was announced in advance to Abraham. What can this mean? I don't think that God sat down and said, okay, this is the way it's going to work. Uh, I'm going to send my son through the Virgin Mary. He's going to live and he's going to teach and he's going to be crucified. I don't think that's what it's talking about at all. Rather, it is the principle of the gospel that we are to put our faith in God because God is seeking to create a people, his own people. And the principle is that of faith. It's not just true for Abraham, but also for the Gentiles. Since this is true, we can say with Paul, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Just a a note about faith, because we've talked about it before. It's one of those words that has been so abused uh, in our culture. It's been ripped from its biblical roots. And it's secularized to the point that faith means simply believing. Um, I think in many ways has little resemblance to its original meaning. Faith in scripture is believing God. It isn't believing, it's believing God. And in the Old Testament, if one believed God, one entered into relationship with God. It isn't as though you say something to me, and I'm like, okay, I believe you. And then we say, okay, well, Damon has faith. No, I believe you. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is believing what God says, and as a result, we enter into a relationship. Belief in God points to that relationship, a personal relationship. God is a person. We are made in his image, and so there should be a relationship between the creator and his creatures. This means clearly, I think, that when one trusts in Jesus, the crucified Messiah, one enters into relationship with God. So when these false teachers came to Galatia, in modern Turkey, from Jerusalem, and they said, do you want to be a part of the people of God? The Galatians should have said, we already are. No, no, do you want to be the children of Abraham? The Galatians should have said, we already are. No, 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 you can't be, you're Gentiles. Yes, we are the children of Abraham because we are people of faith. We believe what God has promised, specifically what he has promised in Jesus the Messiah, and therefore we are like Abraham and we are his children. But as Paul says about the Galatians, they are rather foolish because it is the human tendency, I think, to turn away from God, to not be content with what he has done. And so it is what God has done plus something. And Paul says to the Galatians, no. He will spell this out further as the book develops.
Just a couple of things before we leave. So I was going back through my notes and trying to think, what is it that ties these things together? I think the first thing that comes to mind is responsibility. First of all, from the introduction, the responsibility to use the gifts and the abilities that God has given us, and the responsibility to give thanks. Uh, in meeting with the Coburn uh, group this past week, um, I expressed to them that I think that the giving of thanks is, is really critical, and for myself, um, I, I find, if you know me, you know, I, I tend to be a, a sentimental person. And there are moments in my life when I, I wish that time would stop, that I could just stay here. Everything's perfect. Everything is just wonderful. But that's not the way things are. And then you move along, you're sort of... Sort of and I, what I've come to see is what God calls us to do all the time, but I think in a special way in those moments, is to give thanks. And I think if we give thanks that this is something God has given us, then in a sense we can continue on life. We're not stuck in that past moment. We don't long for, you know, nostalgically for something in the past, but we can give thanks to God for that. And I think we have a deep responsibility to do that and to use the, God, the gifts that God has given us, not simply for ourselves, not for a paycheck, but for the common good. But then, in our passage today, we have the responsibility to think. We have the call to think. You know, Paul isn't simply doing name-calling here. He wants to get their attention, that's for sure. But he wants them to realize that they need to think. If they would just sit down and think this through, they would realize that these people from Jerusalem were false teachers. Um, There was a philosopher who said, I think this is back in the 1960s, um, that many Christians would rather die than think, and many of them do. Um, sadly, the church is not known in this generation for its, its uh, intellectual prowess, if you wish. But we are called to love the Lord our God with all our mind. We have a responsibility to think. And then the last thing I would bring to your attention to remind you is the place of faith. We die to this irrelevant identity that is one who is separated from God and we trust God and his promises and we believe him and we have new life in Christ. If you think about it, if you step back for a moment and think about it. To believe that Jesus is the Messiah requires faith. As comfortable and as um, used to it as we are, just stop and think a minute. Many years ago, uh, during a Wednesday night service, maybe a Wednesday night service, uh, a gentleman came in off the street, and I'd never met him before, and um, this is back in the early 80s. Uh, back before we used to have a lot of street people in the neighborhood. And um, we had question and answer, and he was very much engaged. But at a certain point in the Bible study, he said, you know, I, I need a dollar to get the bus because I need to get out to Westwood, so could you give me a dollar? Which seemed an odd thing to bring up in the middle of a Bible study. But, and I didn't have any money on me, and so I said, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. And he was outraged. And he stomped out to the back door, and right before he opened the door to leave, 
He said, you stupid people, something to that effect, you believe in a Jew who wasn't smart enough to get himself off the cross and walked out. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, when you think of him on the cross, that requires faith. Because that's just, that's counterintuitive. That does not make sense. It is a gift of God and we must trust him. And in believing him, a relationship is developed. We become the people of God, the children of Abraham. But somehow the Galatians had lost sight of this. They had been thrown off track. And the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will continue to look at this. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's directness, his bluntness, for his concern for the truth. How easily, as humans, we are swayed, and usually not to the good, but to that which is wrong. I thank you that by your grace we are the children of Abraham when we put our faith in you. And in putting our faith in you, we receive your spirit. Your spirit lives within us. And we are now your children. It's not by anything we have done, but because of your great grace and your love for us. Help us to think these things through in the days to come. And as we go through our lives and we struggle, wondering, is this me? Is this God? May you give us uh, peace. May we think through the, the reality that we are your creatures. And you have gifted us. And we are to be grateful. We're grateful for those that are with us today to worship, that we can worship together. We pray for those that will be traveling. Uh, we have many who aren't with us today because it's Mother's Day. Bring them back safely. For those who are coming from the Philippines, that you would give them safety. Thank you for the safety you've given us already, bringing Grant back and Rosa as well. How good you are to us. And now as we leave this place, we pray that your grace and your spirit would go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.